From the Migration Policy Institute, this is Changing Climate, Changing Migration. This is a podcast exploring what climate change means for migration around the world. I'm your host, Julian Hattam. I'm the editor of the Migration Information Source, which is MPI's online magazine, providing a range of straight-ahead, timely analysis, data, and insights on migration trends worldwide. You should sign up for our free bi-monthly newsletter online at migrationinformation.org. Around the world, there are very few countries that are interested in creating new migration pathways focused solely on an individual's vulnerability to climate change. But one or two countries are. In the last couple of years, Australia, New Zealand, and some Pacific Island nations have experimented with innovative policies to help people experiencing the impacts of climate change, particularly sea level rise. They haven't always been a success, but they have provided important demonstrations of ways that countries could consider new climate migration pathways if they so chose. To help me make sense of some of the policy experiments, I'm joined today by Jane McAdam. Jane is the head of the Caldor Center for International Refugee Law in Sydney and a leading figure on international refugee law, especially regarding climate-related displacement. Jane, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I am delighted to have you here today. Oh, it's a great pleasure to join you. So I want to talk about some particular policy experimentation and pathways taking place today, but I want to start by taking a step back. In most regions of the world, there is very little thought to creating new immigration pathways specifically predicated on climate change. I guess, what do you think is different about Oceania and some of the Pacific Islands? Well, I suppose the obvious point, which is the unfortunate one, is that um, many Pacific Island countries are well and truly experiencing the impacts of climate change uh, with more frequent disasters, more severe disasters, with uh, the impacts of sea level rise interacting with the the more sort of sudden onset hazards that we're we're seeing playing out. So in one sense, this is very much an issue that people are experiencing at the present time and, of course, are very concerned about the future impacts as well. But I think, too, there's been a lot of international attention around uh, this, this region. And so that, too, has amplified, I suppose, the, um, the, the focus, in a way, on, on what Pacific countries are, are doing and advocating for. So let's talk about what they're doing. Uh, I guess most recently, in late 2023, Australia and Tuvalu announced a deal that has been described as the world's first ever bilateral climate migration deal. The descriptions are that this is a very big thing. Uh, I guess, what is in the agreement and why is it such a big deal, if it is? So this treaty was announced at the Pacific Islands Forum late last year, and I think it came as a surprise to pretty much everybody, not least because the Pacific Islands Forum at the same meeting also adopted a Pacific Regional Framework on Climate Mobility, and it was somewhat overshadowed by this bilateral deal uh, that that was um, heralded with great fanfare in the media. Now, it's a treaty between Tuvalu and Australia, but in essence, part of the treaty was uh, an agreement that every year Australia would enable 280 people from Tuvalu to migrate to Australia, presumably as you know, on a permanent basis so that they would be able to become permanent residents and in turn uh, take up Australian citizenship should they so desire. And it would enable people to to move, to work, to live in Australia. They would have access to, um, to education, to social security benefits and the like. So this was 
new in the sense that it was framed in the context of climate change and and sort of future impacts that Tuvalu might experience. So even though the you know the the visa itself doesn't have a particular name yet, uh, it's very much framed in the context of of climate change, which is I think why everybody was saying this is a really really new thing. I think uh, some of the things that have been of concern though within Tuvalu is firstly the lack of consultation, which is indeed very problematic. Um, obviously, if people are to move, and this is meant to be a voluntary arrangement. Nobody is forcing people to move, nor is this akin to a, you know, protection, a refugee type protection visa. It's very much about voluntary migration. But uh, I think there's consternation that this that people weren't themselves consulted about it. But the other aspect to the treaty involves security arrangements whereby Australia, in effect, has um, a veto over other arrangements that uh, Tuvalu might seek to enter into. And, you know, the, the elephant in the room is, is China. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, some people were very concerned that effectively Tuvalu was now, you know, at the behest of the Australian government in terms of, of what sorts of arrangements it might enter into. My understanding is that the request itself or, or the framing itself was uh, Tuvalu's request, uh, that mm. the request for you know not only the security arrangement, um, Australia's assurance that it would assist in the case of disaster, as well as the migration aspect was apparently all Tuvalu's request to Australia. It wasn't Australia saying, well, we'll do this in exchange for that. Um, but as I say, the you know the detail is is still to be worked out. We've only got the the kind of bare bones of the agreement in the treaty itself. I think it's important though that you discuss some of the kind of the opposition or at least controversy or political dynamics going on in Tuvalu because especially from a top line level it can be easy to overlook it seems like a lot of these um, these are very complicated decisions right these are very complicated political back and forth bilateral agreements that happen that are uh, not always universally received, which is to say, I guess, in other words, people don't always, people are not often desirous to move and are not always desperate for pathways to move. But I guess I want to, I want to focus a little bit, discuss the mobility aspect. How how can we look about this proposal as we understand it? 280 people is not that many people in, in the grand scheme of things. Is this, I mean, is it fair to see this as a sort of um, a, an experiment that could inform future climate mobility pathways? Is it one part of this broader geopolitical deal? I guess, how, yeah, how, how can we think mm. about the mobility piece in particular? Well, I think notwithstanding the concern from within Tuvalu that this was a deal sprung upon them, mm-hmm. uh, it is consistent with a lot of calls, uh, including from people within Tuvalu and elsewhere in the Pacific, for voluntary migration pathways. So, I mean, if we go back to the the Nansen Initiative on Disaster-Induced Cross-Border Displacement, when it released its uh, protection agenda that 109 governments endorsed back in um, 2015, one of the, uh, or or perhaps the the kind of central piece of that was that we need a toolbox approach. So there's no one-size-fits-all solution or response to movement in the context of climate change and disasters, but rather we need to have a whole range of measures that are being implemented in different ways in different regions, but not as either-ors, rather as as kind of complementary pieces in a puzzle. And so they include adaptation um, within you know, the, the place where you are. Um, I mean, it's, and sorry, I should say overarching point is mitigation, of course, that needs to be happening, sure. but then we've got adaptation. Fewer greenhouse got... gases, reducing, of, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. More renewable exactly. energy. Yeah. 
yeah. Um, but adaptation, disaster risk reduction measures, addressing displacement where it does occur, whether that's within a country or across international borders, trying to avert that displacement, of course, through adaptation and so on. And then looking at migration as a form of adaptation where it's what people desire, and then looking at planned relocations, both in terms of um, as kind of preempting future displacement so that people are moved out of harm's way before disaster strikes, as well as a, a so-called durable solution if people have been displaced and can no longer go home. And most of the relocations, or in fact, all the relocations we've seen in recent years have been internal. Um, whether they ultimately extend to cross-border is, is a huge question and involves multiple challenges. So I think within this context, what we've seen in the Australia-Tuvalu arrangement is something that, that certainly fits within this, this toolkit approach. It's also mentioned in the Pacific Regional Framework on Climate Mobility, which is that instrument I, I mentioned that yeah. was also adopted in November last year by the leaders of the Pacific Islands Forum. And, you know, what's interesting is if you go back um, even 30 years, uh, I, I remember interviewing, not 30 years ago, but I remember interviewing the, a former Prime Minister of Tuvalu who was in office some mm -hmm. three decades ago, and he mentioned that at that time he had been in discussions with Australia's then Prime Minister, Paul Keating, about possible migration opportunities for Tuvaluans mm. to Australia, even raising the prospect of, of purchasing land. And at that point in time, it was a, a no-go. Um, there have been perennial proposals um, from Tuvalu and other countries uh, about buying land in Australia or elsewhere, about prospects of uh, special migration visas. But this is really, certainly with Australia, the first that we've seen material, well, maybe materialise. <laughs> At least the farthest, uh, closer to materialise than anything else, I guess. I, I should say specifically framed uh, in, in, climate. in the climate. Yeah, exactly right. Sure, sure. Um, I guess I want to compare and contrast this with a, to my mind, somewhat similar agreement that also got a lot of headlines a couple of years ago, uh, which was in 2017, I think it was New Zealand launched uh, what it described as an experimental humanitarian visa for people facing sea level rise. It was widely interpreted as the world's quote unquote, uh, first ever climate refugee visa. What happened there? And I get the end. Uh, is that one of the reasons why, as you note, this new Australia discussion agreement with Tuvalu does not frame the visa as a humanitarian refugee visa? It's interesting because I think there have been so many things pitched as the first climate refugee <laughs> um, And look, I mean, that, that proposal that New Zealand put forward um, with a relatively new Labor government was, I think, an attempt to, uh, and a genuine attempt to say New Zealand is serious about assisting its Pacific neighbours. New Zealand, um, particularly, I think, compared to Australia, sees itself far more, I, I mean, the people in New Zealand really regard themselves far more as within the Pacific family. I think for Australia, uh, there isn't such a widespread um, kind of view like that, which I think also made the Australian Tuvalu um, arrangement quite an interesting one. But I think, you know, there, there were certainly domestic political issues at, at play in New Zealand with a um, you know, delicate uh, arrangement within the parliament where I think ultimately there wasn't sufficient support for that to go through. But equally, I think when the New Zealand government 
delved into the idea and explored the idea more fully, particularly in consultation with Pacific communities, it became apparent that, in fact, most Pacific communities were not calling for a refugee-like visa, um, but that there were other options that they wanted to explore. I should note that for many years now, New Zealand has had a a particular visa called the Pacific Access category. It also has a similar um, type of visa for people from Samoa. But the Pacific Access category enables a certain number of people from designated Pacific countries to move on a permanent basis to New Zealand. They have to be between a certain age, they have to have certain English language proficiency, and importantly, have a job offer in New Zealand. Mm. And while that might sound like a barrier um, in practice it, it has been you know, it, it hasn't really been such a such a barrier and the scheme operates a bit like a, a lottery so that people apply to go into the ballot and then x number of, of names are drawn out and provided the, the requirements are met people can move on a permanent basis to New Zealand so I think the you know the, this humanitarian visa idea was to say well some people won't qualify for that they won't have the skills or the, the you know, won't be within the right age bracket to, to move, so let's broaden it out. Um, and I think that's that seems to be the difference too in this new Australian Tuvalu visa that it doesn't seem to link movement to, to having work. It, it talks about mm-hmm. coming to study, to work or to live. So presumably that to live would mean um, there's not an age limitation necessarily, but we still don't know what the mm-hmm. detail might look like. Uh, and interestingly, too, Australia emulated the Pacific Access category that New Zealand's had for a long time um, through its Pacific Engagement Visa, which is um, shortly to become operational. So I think, too, what's also um, relevant to note is that in the New Zealand um, case law, so where people are claiming um, or, or arguing that they shouldn't be removed to certain countries on the basis that they have a refugee claim or that their human rights are at risk, namely their right to life, or that they're at risk of inhuman or degrading treatment if removed. New Zealand has really been leading the way there. So I think, you know, in many respects, um, climate in New Zealand has been quite ripe to, to sort of look, yeah. well, how, how do we legislate or institutionalise some of this sort of protective framework in a way that the Immigration and Protection Tribunal in New Zealand has already been doing for individuals who've who've kind of made made claims to it in in some cases. I, I want to poke at that in one second, but I, I want to go back briefly to this notion of a humanitarian visa. Some of the you know Pacific engagement visas you talk about, my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, there's not an explicit climate component there, right? Correct. It is it functions more or less like a labor, any sort of like employment labor visa. I guess, how is that 2017 New Zealand experiment viewed now in retrospect? Is it uh, a cautionary tale? Is it a missed opportunity? Something else? Which is another way of asking, were there lessons from that episode that helped inform this recent Mm. Australia Tuvalu agreement and or other uh, similar, to the extent there are any other similar just policies underway? Well, I think the biggest distinction is that, as far as we understand it, that it was Tuvalu who approached Australia requesting this mm-hmm. framework. And I think that's, if any, if there's to be a cautionary tale from the, the New Zealand um, proposal, I mean, what, what the government itself came out to say was we need further consultation because we've realised that while we might have all the goodwill in the world, mm-hmm. what we were suggesting was not necessarily going to be embraced by Pacific communities themselves. I mean, I, I joked before that we've had, you know, the first climate 
refugee yeah. visa ever. Um, I mean, in fact, if you go back into the early 2000s, the, um, there was a proposal by the Greens in Australia to create a climate refugee visa. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the States, there have been various proposals sure. um, for, for similar arrangements. I mean, sometimes the, the language, I, I don't like the language of climate refugees exactly, <laughs> um, but, but I guess it's a shorthand for saying there are some people, uh, in fact, there are some people who will qualify as refugees under the Refugee Convention where the impacts of climate change uh, worsen their predicament. Um, But quite aside from that, you know, how do climate impacts and disasters factor in to um, what we might call complementary protection claims? So where people's lives are at risk, or as I say, they might face cruel, inhuman or degrading treatment um, because of the conditions in their country. And I think we're we're starting to see decision makers around the world grapple with that, although um, the, you know, understandings of, of how all of this works with existing law um, are far better developed in some regions than in others. And so this is the point in the conversation where I usually make very explicit that under you know international refugee law, there is no uh, clear definition or, or there is no mention of climate or environmental change as a, a reason to provide refugee status. Um, the 1951 Refugee Convention makes no mention of these things, et cetera, et cetera. But as you note, there are complementary kind of overlaps between environmental refugee um, or environmental and climate vulnerabilities and uh, reasons to provide protection in international law writ large. Let's let's talk about those, especially in the New Zealand case, which, as you say, is um, a bit more out front than some of other countries. Uh, I know there was to go back of the headlines, uh, you know, the first ever climate refugee, one of the people who often or who has gotten headlines for the first ever climate refugee, quote unquote, or at least an important case uh, also comes from New Zealand. Uh, I'm thinking of an individual named uh, Ioni Tesiotia uh, from Kiribati, who sought asylum on climate grounds, I believe is the story. New Zealand said no, but the UN Human Rights Committee said that maybe he should have some protection or he should be eligible for some protection. I guess, can you break down what happened to me in that case? And if there are other cases that are are worth discussing? Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, this was an interesting matter where um, Mr. Tesiota had lived in New Zealand for some time. Um, Through various events that happened, it became apparent that he'd overstayed his visa. He'd originally gone there to work. And uh, there were very limited, there really were very limited grounds for him to to remain. And so I think the, you know, his his lawyer said, well, this actually could make a very interesting test case given the impacts of climate change that Kiribati is already experiencing, but also the projected impacts into the future. Uh, You know, let's see whether uh, New Zealand would provide you with protection um, for, for those reasons. Now, as you say, he he wasn't successful either on the refugee claim uh, or on the the kind of complementary human rights grounds. But I think what's important to note is that even in the New Zealand, or perhaps especially in the New Zealand Immigration and Protection Tribunal, the decision maker, Bruce Burson, did say that potentially if the factual matrix were were right, then somebody could indeed be a refugee. under the Refugee Convention definition, where the impacts of climate change exacerbate or feed into the persecution and country conditions that that a person to which a person fears being returned. So I think that's one important point to note that the Refugee Convention doesn't need to be expanded uh, mm. 
necessarily in order to accommodate um, certain protection claims. Certainly not everybody, but there are some people who would already qualify. And UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency, in 2020 issued legal considerations um, to explore and explain when and where the Refugee Convention might apply. Um, And indeed, with colleagues, we're currently in the process of developing guidelines for decision makers or guidance for decision makers to, um, to really show in a very detailed and practical way how refugee law and human rights law based principles of non-reformant could assist here. When it came to the... Sorry, to cut you off, non-reformant is the notion that you should not send someone back to an environment and where they would be... their grave rights would be at risk, right? Their right to life. That's right, right to, where they have a well-founded fear of being persecuted or yes. um, face a, a real risk of being subjected to serious forms of harm. That's right. Sorry, thank you. So so then, I mean, the, the, the more relevant question in the Tessioda matter in New Zealand then, and certainly the aspect that went to the UN Human Rights Committee by virtue of the jurisdiction it has, was looking at the right to life. And in New Zealand, they also were looking a bit more closely at uh, the inhuman or degrading treatment component of the claim. When it got to the Human Rights Committee, it was really a focus on the, the right to life. And the question was whether, given the factual situation in Kiribati, the individual circumstances of Mr. Tesiota and his family, whether it could be said that if he were returned to Kiribati, he would his right to life would be jeopardised. And I think what was interesting is, in the New Zealand context, it was looked at more in terms of arbitrary deprivation of life. The Human Rights Committee takes a broader approach to the right to life and says we've got to focus on whether a person would be able to live a life with dignity. And I think mm. that you know that sort of changes the flavour of what we're looking at somewhat. On the facts, um, both in the New Zealand Tribunal and subsequent courts, and then in the UN Human Rights Committee, it was found that you know on the facts the claim wasn't made out. But as a matter of principle, and this was perhaps you know, one of the most important statements by the Human Rights Committee. As a matter of principle, people who face um, serious risks because of climate impacts could well uh, benefit from the principle of of non-reformant. In other words, states would not be allowed to remove them um, where the right to life or, um, you know, right to be protected from cruel, inhuman or degrading treatment were at particular risk. I mean, in, in one sense, this wasn't groundbreaking because scholars had said that for a very long time. We have comparable cases about health and medical cases where a similar point has been made. Mm. But I think it was very important to now have that statement of authority from the Human Rights Committee um, because it's certainly now being picked up by advocates and and by decision makers in other uh, courts and jurisdictions Mm. too. And I guess to be clear though, there is a very real difference from sending someone back or not sending someone back to a place where their rights would and life could be in jeopardy and allowing them a pathway out of a place where their rights and liberty are in jeopardy. Well, no, I mean, I think it's interesting because, yeah, as you, it, this wasn't a case of someone saying, I had to flee because this happened. It was more akin to what in refugee law we call a refugee surplus claim, where somebody's mo- travelled somewhere else, and mm. while they're away, a conflict breaks out or a, a new government comes to power where somebody of their ethnicity mm. is being persecuted, that sort of thing, and then they say, well, actually, I can't now go back. So in the refugee context, there are certainly parallels. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I as, as a matter of... Um, 
don't know, would we call it good policy or just practice too? I mean, I think, yes, you need to have mechanisms to ensure that people aren't sent back to particular forms of harm. But Mm. equally, I think we need to have uh, pathways to ensure that people can leave situations before they become so so dangerous that we see people really taking their lives into their own hands. And that was another point that the Human Rights Committee made was that, you know, well before the, the violation occurs or that, you know, r- extreme risk materialises, um, protection would need to be forthcoming. So uh, in, in that sense, this is why things like uh, dignified migration pathways are important. And I mean, before you mentioned, you, you were saying, well, the, the Australia Tuvalu deal references climate change in the kind of broader framing, whereas the Pacific Access category in New Zealand doesn't. That's true. But I think we need to be cognizant of the fact that stock standard migration pathways for family reunion, education and work are really important mechanisms here as well. We don't necessarily need to create brand new visa categories. It's about looking at what do countries have? To what extent can they be flexible in how they apply eligibility requirements from certain regions or how might they expand them? By all means, create new visas if you want to, but enabling people to, to move on their own terms isn't dependent on having specific visas uh, called climate mm. visas or something similar. And uh, this kind of brings us around to something you mentioned at the beginning of this a new regional framework on climate mobility in the Pacific, right? Can you give me a, a very brief overview of that and sure. uh, I guess what the future of climate mobility, climate migration in the Pacific looks like? Sure. Look, I should disclose that um, I, along with a small team, were ap- appointed as the technical drafters of the initial um drafts of the Pacific Regional Framework on Climate Mobility. Um, The the document that has subsequently been endorsed by Pacific leaders uh, is, you know, is different again. It's obviously drawn on those early drafts, but it then became more of a political document. And so, uh, and it's, you know, shorter and um, (laughs) so, (laughs) shorter, yes, I'm an academic. Um, But in, in essence, it was something that I think Pacific community or Pacific governments felt was really important to try and elevate certain well, certain elements that would comprise a regional framework on climate mobility. Now, it's not a legal document. It doesn't provide formal pathways, but if it essentially draws out the elements, a bit like those mentioned in the Nansen Initiative Protection Agenda, so staying in place, displacement, migration, planned relocation, and so on, that countries in the region need to be thinking about. So it's looking both at internally in our own countries, what do we need to do? But as a region, and in terms of regional and international cooperation, what are the sorts of things that we want to be promoting? And I think the very existence of such a framework is is quite powerful um, because it's saying to the world, we are a region currently and, and certainly in future experiencing movement um, linked to disasters and climate change. This is what we want to do about it. And this is where we will be calling on the international community to support us. So this was really the first stage. It was developed in consultation with affected communities, um, obviously governments, uh, NGOs, experts, um, international organisations. And then the next iteration is, well, how do we sort of operationalise it? How do we have, um, you know, what, what policies are developed beneath it to really give effect to the the broad commitments that are expressed there? Uh, and we're almost out of time, but I guess just kind of briefly to wrap up, 
Are there lessons uh, from this kind of uh, from this work that's been going on in the Pacific that is relevant for the rest of the world? I mean, is it fair to think of these kind of experiments and legal explorations as a preview of some of the global um, reckoning that we're all we all will be doing as the impacts of climate change continue to become more extreme and certain vulnerable areas um, are faced with the decision about like, possibly migration? I guess what sort of lessons can be drawn? Uh, I guess for the rest of us. I think there are some important ones um, that, you know, firstly, it is important to look at what is a particular region or sub-region experiencing um, because the needs and uh, concerns are quite different in some parts of the world. Um, the mobility context is different in Africa, for example. There are free movement arrangements um, that we don't have parallels of in the Pacific, you know, likewise in Europe, for example. Um, but I think, it, so it's looking, appreciating the regional context. It's also recognising that patterns of migration and movement are likely to be replicated here as well. We're not likely to see sudden shifts in how people move. But at the same time, we can't stick our heads in the sand and just hope for the best. I mean, this is something that we need to be planning for now and ensuring that people have safe and dignified ways um, to remain at in, in their homes, which is mostly what people want to do, but to move elsewhere if they want to and if they need to. So I think, you know, certainly um, the Pacific isn't the only region of the world that's grappling with these issues. There have been innovative approaches adopted in other uh, regions as well. But I think that it's um, important to recognise uh, the, the participatory approach in the Pacific, um, the needs and desires of affected communities and really listening to their voices in, in what it is that they want and don't want when it comes to uh, responses to climate mobility. We should probably wrap it up there. Uh, this was super fascinating. I'm so glad we could have you on, Jane. Uh, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate this. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, Jane McAdam is a Ciencia Professor of Law and Director of the Cal Dorr Center for International Refugee Law at UNSW in Sydney. She is an Australia Research Council Laureate Fellow and a Fellow of the Academy of the Social Sciences in Australia, the Australian Academy of Law, Oxford University's Refugee Studies Center, and the Refugee Law Initiative in London. In 2021, she was appointed an officer of the Order of Australia for, quote, distinguished service to international refugee law, particularly to climate change and the displacement of people. Thanks for listening to this episode of Changing Climate, Changing Migration. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast to catch all our new episodes. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and wherever else you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed my discussion with Jane McAdam, I'm sure you'll enjoy some of our other episodes exploring whether climate migrants should get special legal pathways, why there is no such thing as a climate refugees, and the global governance of climate migration. Find all our episodes in our archives at migrationpolicy.org podcasts. The Migration Information Source has a special collection of articles about climate change and migration, which you can find online at migrationpolicy.org climate. And to stay on top of what we've been publishing, subscribe to the Migration Information Source newsletter. It's free, comes out twice per month, and is available at migrationinformation.org. If you've got thoughts on this episode or ideas for the future, send me an email at source at migrationpolicy.org. I'd love to hear from you. 
This episode was produced by Yusuf Hamid and Daniela Espacio, with assistance from Lisa Diction and Michelle Middlestadt. Our music is Touch by Patrick Patrickios. My name is Julian Haddam. I'll see you next time.